Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Han Pan was born in Vietnam and moved to Canada in 1979. He married Bic in Toronto and they settled into life in nearby Scarborough and both worked for an auto parts manufacturer. In 1986, they had a daughter, Jennifer, and three years later, a son, Felix. At four years of age, Jennifer was taking piano lessons, which she enjoyed and excelled at. She did well in elementary school and collected many awards. As the oldest child, big things were expected of her. Her parents enrolled her in figure skating and had hoped she would compete nationally. She often practiced skating until 10 p.m., then studied for two hours before going to bed. But her hopes of competing in the Olympics were dashed when she suffered a knee injury. At the Catholic high school Jennifer attended, there was an eclectic group of students. While good grades were expected, it was also a place where everyone fit in. Jocks, nerds, artists, and musicians all melded together, and Jennifer moved easily between the groups. Jennifer was tall for her age of five foot seven. She had long, straight dark hair and wore wire-rimmed glasses. Outward, she appeared friendly and confident, but inwards, she felt inadequate and doubted herself. In elementary school, she had been at the top of her class, but in high school, her grades began slipping. Having every second of her day filled with expectations was beginning to take a toll on Jennifer. As grade eight came to a close, she expected to receive various medals for her academic achievements and be named valedictorian. But when neither of those things happened, she was shocked. Her mother sensed something was wrong and told her daughter, We just want you to do your best. Just do what you can. But Jennifer knew that wasn't good enough for her father. He expected much more from her. He had worked hard and made sacrifices to provide her opportunities, and he expected her to achieve. By grade nine, her grades slipped to an average of 70%. Jennifer felt ashamed. Using old report cards and a photocopier, she forged her report card by copying and pasting straight A's. She knew universities didn't use marks from grade 9 and 10 for admission, so she thought 
it's no big deal. Toronto Life reported that Jennifer's parents picked her up from school every day and drove her to their approved extracurricular activities. They forbid her to go to parties or dances, and having a boyfriend was off-limits until after university. In 2002, when Jennifer was in grade 11, she met Daniel Wong. He was a year older and played trumpet in the school band, and the two secretly began dating. Jennifer still hadn't managed to bring her grades up and was mostly getting B's. She continued to forge her report card with A's. Han and Bick thought they were living the Canadian dream. They worked hard, lived frugally, and saved every penny they could. By 2004, they had purchased a large home and drove a Lexus and Mercedes and had managed to save up $200,000. In grade 12, Jennifer was accepted into Ryerson University, but then she failed calculus and the offer was rescinded. She couldn't tell anyone, not her friends or her parents. She was ashamed. So instead, she came up with a plan. She would pretend to take science classes at Ryerson for two years, then transfer to the University of Toronto's pharmacology program, which she knew was what her father wanted. She forged receiving a student loan and a scholarship so that her parents wouldn't pay for tuition. She bought school supplies and used textbooks. Every day, she packed up her books and took the bus. But Jennifer didn't go to class. Instead, she visited Daniel, who was now attending York University, or she hung out in cafes. Two years later, Jennifer told her parents she was going to the University of Toronto. Because it was a long commute, she asked to stay with her friend Topaz in the city, and they agreed. But Jennifer never stayed with her friend. Instead, she stayed with Daniel and his parents. The couple had been dating for three years, and Daniel urged her to leave her parents. But Jennifer knew her parents would never approve of Daniel and his job at a pizza shop. Two years later, Jennifer pretended to graduate university and hired someone to forge a transcript with straight A's. At graduation, she told her parents there wasn't enough seats for visitors and they couldn't attend. The thing about lies is that they multiply. You need to tell a second lie to cover the first. And so it continues. Jennifer had dug herself in so deep there was no way out. She fabricated another lie, telling her parents she was volunteering at Sick Kids Hospital. But her father noticed she didn't wear a uniform or have a pass key. So on a hunch, he drove her to the hospital, and her mother secretly followed her in. 
Jennifer spotted her and hung out in the emergency room for hours, waiting until they finally left. Han then phoned her friend Topaz and discovered his daughter hadn't been staying with her. When Jennifer returned home, he confronted her. After seven years of lies and forgeries, Jennifer broke down and confessed to everything. Well, almost everything. She admitted to never attending university and staying at Daniel's, but she didn't tell them that she'd never even graduated from high school. Han was beyond furious. He ordered her to cease her relationship with Daniel and told her, if not, you'll have to wait till I'm dead. Then Han kicked his daughter out of the house, but her mother managed to convince him to let her stay. They took away her cell phone and laptop. She was only permitted to use them in their presence. Her parents allowed her to continue teaching piano and track the miles she put on the car. Bick felt sorry for her daughter and after a few weeks told her where her father had hidden her cell phone so that she could secretly check her messages. During the spring and summer of 2009, she waited until dark, then dialed Daniel and spoke in a whisper. Jennifer took calculus and finished high school. She used the time in between piano lessons to sneak visits in to Daniel. But after years of hiding their relationship, he had moved on. Jennifer was heartbroken. She was in love with him. In the spring of 2010, Jennifer ran into an old acquaintance from elementary school, Andrew Montemayor. She confided in him about her contentious relationship with her father, and Andrew commented that at one point he considered killing his own father. This planted a seed in Jennifer's mind. She had been under her father's control for 18 months. It was time for a change. Andrew introduced Jennifer to his roommate, Ricardo Duncan. Together, they hatched a plan for Ricardo to murder her father in the parking lot where he worked. Jennifer handed over $1,500 that she had earned giving piano lessons. But by July, Ricardo had disappeared and she realized she'd been had. Although Daniel had a new girlfriend, he and Jennifer remained friends. She reached out to him for help. Together, they came up with a plan, one more evil than before. They'd hire a hitman to murder both her parents so that she and her brother would collect their estate. Jennifer thought her half would be around a half a million dollars. 
Daniel gave Jennifer an iPhone and put her in touch with a man he knew could do the job, Lenford Crawford. He offered her a friend's discount of 50%. Her special rate was $10,000. Under the cover of a dark Halloween night, Lenford checked out the Pan residence. The star reported that Daniel texted Jennifer to get out of that hellhole. In the days following, there were constant texts between Jennifer, Daniel, and Linford to finalize a time that would work when Jennifer and her parents would be home. Her brother Felix was away at university. On the morning of November 8th, Linford texted Jennifer, After work will be game time. That evening, Jennifer watched TV in her bedroom upstairs. At 8.30 p.m., her father retired to his bedroom down the hall. An hour later, her mother arrived home and watched TV downstairs. At 9.35 p.m., a friend of Lenford's called Jennifer. David Mulvaganum and Jennifer spoke for a couple minutes. Then, she went downstairs to say goodnight to her mother. As she walked by the front door, she silently unlocked it. The plan was in motion. At precisely 10.02 p.m., Jennifer flicked the lights on in the upstairs study. A minute later, she switched it off. The signal had been sent. At 10.05 p.m., David called Jennifer again, and they spoke for a few minutes. Lenford and David were joined by another accomplice, Eric Cardi. The three burst through the front door with guns. One of them pointed it at Bick. The other two headed upstairs. One poked a gun in Hans' face, woke him up, and marched him downstairs. Jennifer had come out of her room, and Eric tied her arms behind her and told her to stay in her room. He took $2,500 from Jennifer, then proceeded to her parents' room, where he found another thousand. Eric returned to Jennifer and untied her so that she could lead him to the kitchen where they searched for her mother's wallet. Bick and Hound spoke to each other in Cantonese. One of the attackers said they talked too much and demanded to know where the money was. And to get an answer quick, he used the butt of the gun and hit Han on the back of the head. Eric then returned upstairs with Jennifer, where he tied her arms to the banister. Lenford and David marched Bick and Han to the basement. There they covered their heads with blankets. They shot Han first in the shoulder, a second shot to his face. Then they turned the gun on Bick and shot her three times in the head. Jennifer pulled out the phone she had tucked into her pants and dialed 911. Jennifer's mother died instantly 
she was 53. Her father, though, had survived. Seeing his wife is dead, he wills himself to crawl up the stairs to find help. Jennifer was on the phone when she heard her father moaning. She called down to him, but he didn't stop. He staggered out the door, screaming. A neighbor who was in her driveway rushed to call for help. It took only minutes for police and ambulance to arrive. Vaughn was rushed out of the hospital, and by 3 a.m., police were interviewing Jennifer. On the surface, it appeared to be a home invasion, but then police noticed the keys to the Lexus by the front door, and they wondered why intruders would shoot two of the residents and leave a third witness. Police were suspicious and put Jennifer under surveillance. Jennifer's father was put into a coma. He had bullet fragments lodged in his face that couldn't be removed. A bone near his eye was broken and a neck bone shattered. It was a miracle the bullet had only grazed his carotid artery. And his memory? It was fully intact. When Han woke from the coma, he told police that Jennifer wasn't tied up when she walked around the house with the intruder and that she spoke to him in a friendly manner. On November 22nd, police brought Jennifer in for another interview. She had no idea that they had placed wiretaps and collected evidence from thousands of text messages and phone calls. She confessed that she'd hired the hit, but not to kill her parents. She claimed she wanted them to kill her, to end her suffering, and save her parents the embarrassment of her failures. The police didn't buy it. Skilled interviewer Detective Bill Getz used what is known as a read technique. Whenever he mentioned her mother, Jennifer whimpered. Playing the bad cop, the detective showed no empathy and ordered her to speak up. Then he switched roles and played the good cop. He spent two hours sharing stories and gaining her trust. Jennifer enjoyed the attention and talked freely about her relationship with her parents and Daniel. Then the detective switched tactics and became confrontational. While she sat curled up in a fetal position, he wheeled his chair around the room, pointing out that he was free to move around while she was not. For an hour, the detective talked never giving Jennifer a chance to deny anything. Then he told her, a lot of the things you told police didn't happen. It doesn't match at all. We know that you were involved, but we also know that you're a good person that's made a mistake here. 
You got involved with the wrong people. You were a prisoner in your own house. After three hours, Jennifer cracked and asked him, What happens to me? The York Region News reported that after she was arrested, she said to the detective, I thought you were on my side. Jennifer, Daniel, Linford, David, and Eric were all charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. The first four went to trial in 2014. Eric's lawyer fell ill, and he was tried separately. During the 10-month trial, Jennifer maintained her story of hiring a hitman to kill herself. However, the 50 witnesses and 200 pieces of evidence convinced the jury otherwise. CBC News reported all four were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years for murder and life for attempted murder. At his trial, Eric cooperated with prosecutors and admitted to the plot and was sentenced to 18 years. However, three years later, he was stabbed in prison and found dead in his cell. At her sentencing, Jennifer's father requested that she be barred from communicating with her family, and the judge granted a non-communication order. Jennifer is not permitted any contact with her father or brother. She will be eligible for parole in 2035 when she is 49. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Charlie Billis. A husband and father, he had been blind since childhood, but that didn't stop him from pursuing his passions. He enjoyed co-hosting a talk show on public access TV. But when his car crashed violently, it was no accident. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>